Anybody have uh, presents under their tree? Yes. Well, I, um, we, we have presents under our tree, and they keep, they've kept appearing over the last several weeks. They just, just keep, you know, appearing, and, and we keep having to wait. And, and our house, in our house, we have to wait until Christmas morning um, until we open presents. Uh, every year we go through some sort of weeping and gnashing of teeth on Christmas Eve night to try to open at least one. Uh, but the rules in our house are that we wait until Christmas morning. And you know, there's this joy that comes in the waiting. I mean, it's agonizing in, the, in between time. I mean, you agonize until you get to wake up and the presents get passed out and everybody begins to tear into them. And, 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 and the waiting, though, we know that they're there. And we know that the joy awaits. And when the waiting's over, then the joy will have come. Well, in many ways, uh, the passage I want to look at this morning is uh, parts of it probably very familiar to you if you've been around the church at Christmas time. It's Isaiah chapter 9. And the passage is saying much the same thing to us as a Christmas tree would say, if you will, that the joy of Christmas has come. And at the same time, the passage is also going to tell us that the joy of a greater Christmas is yet to come. I'm going to begin reading in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and this is how Isaiah records it. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea. The land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You've multiplied the nations. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they're glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the Staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'll give you, tell you the outline this morning. I'm going to give you a little context of the passage. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what the content of the passage means. Then I'm going to say there are two things that this passage helps us with this morning. And then I'm going to read a little bit from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And we're going to sing and, and go home, all right? Uh, 
So the context, let me give you a little bit of the context. Isaiah is a prophet that has been sent by God to preach to God's people. And yet, um, God is very clear with Isaiah from the beginning. You're going to go and you're going to preach to my people, but nobody's going to listen to you. And Isaiah will say, well, how long will that last? And God essentially says, well, forever. Nobody's going to listen to you, Isaiah. The year that this is taking place, that Isaiah is hearing from God and then preaching to the people, is somewhere around uh, 739 to 730 B.C., about 700 years, 720 years before Christ will come. And um, at this time in Israel's history, the nation has been divided um, between the south and the north, and it's been divided for almost 200 years at this time. The, the north is called Israel, and the south is called Judah. The, the kings of the southern kingdom, the, the Judah kingdom, um, they're all from the line of David. When the kingdom split, two tribes stayed in the south. You've got Judah and you've got Benjamin, and their capital is Jerusalem. The, the northern kingdoms, the, the ten tribes of the north, they all form a kingdom that's known as Israel. Their, their capital is in a place called Samaria. They have somewhere between 19 and 20 kings, depending on how you count them. And, and they're, all of them are not from the line of David. They're all illegitimate kings, and none of them are good. While Israel, the northern, the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, they were still considered to be uh, God's people. God still called them His people. Uh, they had abandoned God. In, in Isaiah chapter 9, it, it's part of a, a larger section. It starts in chapter 7 and goes to chapter 12. And this is the very middle of that section. And so at the beginning of the section in Isaiah 7, Isaiah is sent by God to the king of the south, the king of Judah, the one who's in the line of David. And his name's Ahaz. And so he goes there, and there's a man up uh, in the northern kingdom. His name's uh, Pekah, he's the king of Israel. He's the next to the last king of that northern part. And, and the northern kingdom, this, this Israel part, they joined forces with a, with a country called Syria and their king. And their plan was that they were going to come south and they were going to conquer Ahaz and Judah. They were going to capture Jerusalem. Well, Ahaz down in the south, and all of the people in Judah with him are afraid. They have enjoyed a little bit of prosperity, but they were not worshiping God. And in their fear, what they'd done is they had imported uh, religious gurus from the east. They had brought wise men from the east, if you will, people that studied stars, and they talked to the dead, and they're called fortune tellers, and, um, and, and they were seen as people who were, who were prosperous and um, wise. And yet what God says about them is that they were idol worshipers who bowed down to the works of their hands. They worshiped the things that they made with their fingers. God did not have a very high view 
of their worship. And so through Isaiah, God is going to announce three things to Ahaz. Three things to this southern kingdom, if you will. The first thing he says is that you don't need to be afraid. The plans of the north, their plans to join with Syria and come down and attack you, those plans are going to fail. In fact, the time has run out on Israel. The the alliance to conquer the south isn't going to come to pass because there is a bigger superpower north of them called Assyria. And Assyria is about to come and conquer them. The second thing that Isaiah is telling Ahaz and the people of the south, um, and he's, as for the house of David, he says, this southern kingdom, he's, he's telling him, listen, God hasn't forgotten about you, even though you've forgotten him. And one of the things that Isaiah will say to Ahaz and the people of David, he'll say over and over again, um, God is with you. Literally, the the word is Emmanuel. That's why he's going to say, listen, God's writing a story, and it's a story that's going to bring salvation to mankind, and the story is going to go right through the throne of David. It's in the beginning of this section in chapter 7 that he promises. He says this, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew will pick up on that in his gospel when Jesus is born. But the third thing that Isaiah has to say to these people in the south is that they have two problems, two sins that need to be dealt with. The first is this that they were not trusting God. That instead of trusting God and, and fearing Him like they should, which is, a, which is a way to say they were to worship Him, they found themselves afraid of everything else. It's called the conspiracies or the, the plans of man. It was this uh, approach to life, an approach to events. Uh, you, you explained all the events of life in a way that leaves God out of it. And so because of that, they started living in fear. Feared all the pressures that were around them. You know how that goes. I mean, we live that way in the 21st century. We look around the world, we, we look at things going on, and we find ourselves scared, and we listen to the conspiracies, and we start to wonder all the ifs and whens. And what Isaiah is saying to the people uh, what God's saying to him through Isaiah is when you start living in fear and you, and you wonder about a conspiracy here and a conspiracy there and, and you start living as though God's not in charge. You forget who He is. You, they become focused on everything else in the world but God. And so Isaiah's going to say to him, hey, listen, we need to go back to the book. We need to go back to the words of God. When we ignore God and we treat Him as common, not as holy, um, uh, listen, uh, we miss that God is a part of everything. We miss that God is orchestrating everything. We miss that this is God's story. 
And he says, listen, God's either a sanctuary to you, one in which you take refuge in, or God becomes a giant stone that you will stumble over. Well, not only were they afraid of everything around them, they were also trusting in all the wrong things. They were trusting in what was false. In fact, at the end of the chapter, just before chapter 9, it says they're seeking advice from the dead. They were wanting to know the future. They, they were looking into, if you will, they were looking into crystal balls, and they were seeking their security in all the wrong places. And Isaiah will say to them again, we need to go back to the words of God. We need to go back to trusting God. But because of this, because of their fear, because of their looking for security in all the wrong places, there was a kind of darkness that had come over them. In fact, the end of chapter 8 talks about this darkness. It was a uh, a deep, a, a thick darkness. The, the kind of darkness that when you're in it, you say, you know what? Where is God? What, why has He done all these things to us? Without realizing that they had done them to themselves. Well, that's the context. And so when Isaiah chapter 9 Isaiah begins to write, and he sees a vision of the things to come. And he looks into this darkness. He, he looks into the darkness of the land and, and the darkness that the people are in. And in doing that, he sees into a time of even greater darkness, of a, of a darkness to come. And in that darkness, what he sees is a light that's going to shine in the darkness. A light to shine into the darkness of God's people. But not only God's people. A light that will shine into the darkness of the world. That's why he says in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has shone a light. This is what Isaiah is seeing. Well, you turn to the New Testament, and we've been studying the Gospel of John together, and you hear John announce about Jesus in John chapter 1 that in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Isaiah, he'll go on. In the next couple of verses, he'll say, listen, there's, there's joy and there's gladness and there's rejoicing in this time. And in verse 5, he'll even say in a very poetic way that the boots and the uniforms used in war, they're going to be thrown into the fire as fuel. In other words, there's not going to be any more war. There will be peace. There will be prosperity. God is promising Isaiah, and Isaiah is looking through the darkness into a greater darkness. And God's promising him that a transformation is going to come, that there's going to be a hope for the future, and, and that a, a day will come that is 
kingdoms restored in all of its glory, and there's going to be peace on earth. And so now, he's going to tell Isaiah, he's going to show Isaiah how it's all going to happen. And that's where Isaiah announces the verses that we're so familiar with in verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and evermore, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. You know, it's interesting. This time coming, this darkness that's even greater than the darkness Isaiah's in, that a light's going to shine, that God's going to come and He's going to transform the world. He's going he's to begin to make right what has been made wrong. And in all of this, the means of transformation, the means will be that a child is born. You know, when you read Isaiah, if you've ever read him, you realize um, Isaiah talks a lot about children or a child. If you kept reading, you'd get to chapter 11 and you'd see there's this vision of a new heaven and a new earth and uh, uh, a home of, of righteousness, and, and, and it says that a child will, will play in a snake's hole perfectly safe. In fact, Isaiah, his children will be a part of his prophesying. He'll end up naming his children in ways that reveal what God's going to do. It's almost as if the prophet Isaiah is anticipating that when God comes, even though God is God and He He's to be revered and he's to be feared. And yet when he comes in his transforming, powerful work, he's going to come as a child. So, so he didn't suddenly descend in this uh, brilliant light or, or riding on a stallion or, or um, as, as one of the heavenly uh, um, incredibles, you know. Going to solve all of this by a superpower. He comes as a child, a baby, vulnerable. In, in ways, he's setting this picture up for this, this king who is also going to be a servant, who he'll tell us later is wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. That's why he comes. More than that, he gives us these divine, um, glorious names. Wonderful Counselor and, and Mighty God and Everlasting Father and, and Prince of Peace. But Isaiah wants us to understand that before he gives us these names, who he's talking about is a child, a human baby. A, a, a baby born in the way that babies are born vulnerable and, and small. And he's certainly a human being in the nature of his reign. He's going to sit on the throne of his 
Father David, as we're told in verse 7, and he's going to reign from that throne. He is a child born to us. It's a human being. And it's the paradox of how God works. Because he's not just a, a child born. He's not only a, a child born. He's a, he's a son given. And the government is going to be on his shoulders. It, it, it's this, it calls to mind. It, it brings to our mind this, this throne language. It's often used in the Old Testament. King comes to power. God says that he appointed him as his own son. And he's made him his son. And he's going to represent the father. And the son is supposed to do all that the father gives him to do. And the king of Israel, as it were, is going to be there. He's going to be God's son in God's place. In effect, God's justice and do God's work. But the human kings so often failed. And the sons betray their heavenly father. But here a son will be given. A son whose reflection of the father is absolutely perfect. Because he's not just a child who is born. And the way humans are born. He is a son who is given. The eternal son of the eternal father. Who's both fully man and fully God. And he's going to reign on David's throne as it's promised in 2 Samuel and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And he will reign forever and ever. And then it says that the Lord Almighty God by his zeal he will accomplish it. Well, let's look at the titles for a minute. Wonderful Counselor. In many ways, it's, it's actually just, just one word, not even two words. It's Wonderful Counselor. In, in a book, Isaiah is going to regularly mock human wisdom and human counsel. And, uh, in fact, in about ten different places, he'll laugh at human wisdom as though human wisdom somehow thought it was the last word. But this one, this wonderful counselor, he is the last word. He is the, he is the supernatural one who brings about the plan. He is the last word. He is also the mighty God. It's an expression that in the, in the, when it's used in the Old Testament, it only refers to God himself. He's the mighty God. The everlasting Father. The one who cares for those He rescues. And He's the Prince of Peace. The one who brings in all of the transformation that's described throughout Isaiah. Simultaneously, a baby. And mighty God. Simultaneously, he's the son of David, appointed a ruler, and the wonderful counselor whose counsel and insight, that they're always right. They, they're never wrong. It always accomplishes perfectly. 
is also one who's depicted as one who rules with a, an iron, a rod of iron, and he's called the Prince of Peace. And he makes war end. That was the hope of God through Isaiah to a people who were afraid, living in darkness, and had turned everywhere else in the world but to God for their hope. And yet God shows up, not because of anything that they had done, but because of what God had said and what God had promised. And God's going to announce that there is a great future to come. Well, in the Old Testament, what you find is that when the prophets write, they, they, see, um, they see the future, and in many ways, they see events smashed together. This one Jesus, He will come as a child. He does come as a baby. He's grown. He grows up to be a man, a perfect man. He, he fulfills the law. He does all that His Father requires. In a way, we could never do it. And yet, later, as Isaiah 53 will say, the first coming of Jesus wasn't the coming to rule and to reign. It was the coming to suffer and to die. To take our place, to die for our sins. That was the way He was going to ransom us. That was the way He was coming in behind enemy lines to, to rescue us from the enemy. There will be a time He does come. He will return. He, he will come back and He will come as the King, the one who is to reign and to rule. Two things to take away from it this morning, and here's what they are. The first is that God's timing happens on a far bigger scale than our timing does. See, what happens is seven centuries will go by between the prophecy that Isaiah announces and the arrival of Jesus. And a lot of things happen in those seven centuries. The northern kingdom is going to fall to Assyria, just like God said it would. Then Assyria is going to be conquered by another uh, superpower in the world called Babylon. And then Babylon's going to come, and it's going to conquer the southern kingdom. It's going to take over Jerusalem, and it's going to take God's people, and they're going to be taken into captivity. And they're going to be there for 70 years. And then, after 70 years, they're going to get to come back to their land, but when they come back, it won't feel like home. Because they're going to find that they're strangers in their own land. And then within a few years, Rome comes and, well, Rome conquers everyone. When the New Testament opens, Rome is in charge. And there seems to be a new darkness, a darkness even greater than the darkness in Isaiah's day, fills the land. And that's when the light of the world will be born. See, when people are told to trust God, that they're not simply being told, listen, trust God and then in your life is going to be fine and you'll get your best life now and then trust God and you'll have happy children and trust God and everything's going to be well with you. No. Trust God. Across the story that He's written, across the sweeping patterns and purposes 
that He has for His people. It doesn't mean, listen, it doesn't mean you can't trust Him with the the infinite details, the smallest little things in your life. You absolutely can. But too often, in our desire to understand what's going on or to understand how history's moving and what does this mean and what does that mean and we get too focused on the small things we get too focused on the here and the now and we want peace in our time in fact there was a king hezekiah he hears about dangers that are coming and says oh, i don't mind those dangers as long as i can just die in my bed but that's not the way god looks at things he wants people to trust him to trust him with his purposes for all the days of our life and all the centuries to come and to believe that god is in control and will bring all of these things Everything will bring all of his own purposes to pass, one after another after another. That every moment of your life, and every step that you take, is, is part of the greater and the bigger story that God's accomplishing. Listen, it means the part that we play in life, maybe the part I play is a time of suffering. It may mean there's a time of revival. It might mean there's a time of decline. It may mean a time of prosperity or maybe a time of poverty. But but still, God is worthy to be trusted. He brings about all of His purposes, not only for my life, but for His people, for the coming of His kingdom, and for all of eternity. It's this, it's this big scale. We always misjudge Him if the scale's so small that we can't think about anything but our own small moment in time. And we forget about the big story that God's writing. Well, here's the second thing I would say. Is that we, like the people of Isaiah, are awaiting His coming again. See, Jesus came as predicted. The the Christ came just as God said He would. Seven and a half centuries later, but but the consummation, the the finality, the the end of that story that all of these predicted blessings are talking about, they they, they come only in part. They they come only in the beginnings of it. We, We await for Him to come again. For the rest of what's promised to come true. See, we know this. All the wars haven't ceased. All the the implements and boots and uniforms of war, they haven't been destroyed. And it's still a, a dark world. And God works in mysterious ways, even behind all these things. And He's bringing about His purposes and He's calling His people. And ultimately, our hope this morning and every morning is Christ's coming again. He came as predicted, and yet there is more yet to come. And so, like those in Isaiah, we're expected, we're called, we're we're given the Word of God to trust God at His Word. 
to trust God. Not to fear the things that our culture fears. Not to find false security in the wisdom of the world or the religions that belong to the dead or complex conspiracy theories, but to remember that God is in control. And Jesus is coming back. Oh, we're not to be passive. We're to be people who are God-centered. And as we look back and we, we contemplate how all of the generations leading up to Christ, that they were told, wait for Him and wait for Him, and they look forward to Him to trust the one who God would send. Sometimes we look back and we say, okay, well, He came. But what now? Well, throughout the 20 centuries of church history, the Advent season, the season that we're in, the, the, the preparation as we, as we come to Christmas, as we come to remembering the, the birth of Jesus, the coming of the light into the world, for 20 centuries, people have remembered and celebrated His first coming and have been called and invited others to wait for His second coming. And just like the people in Isaiah's day, we're not left without a word from God about the Christmas that is to come. In fact, God gave us a whole book at the end of our Bible called Revelation. It gives us the promises of the Christmas that is to come. So I want to read a bit of it to you, and it's, um, well, it's Sally Lloyd-Jones's take on um, the book of Revelation. She entitles it, the, A Dream of Heaven. And John, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, will be given this vision. She says this, John was one of Jesus' helpers. He was old now and living on an island, which might sound nice, except it was a prison. The leaders had put him there to stop him from talking about Jesus, but I'm sure you don't think a little thing like being in a cell or in a prison or on an island in the middle of the ocean could stop God's plan, do you? One morning, Jesus appeared right there in John's cell, and and Jesus' eyes were bright and shining like the sun. And he says, I'm going to show you a secret, John, Jesus said, about when I come back. His voice was like the sound of rushing water. Write down what you see so God's children can read it and wait with happy excitement. Then Jesus gave John a beautiful dream, except John was wide awake and what he saw was real and one day it would all come true. He says, I see a throne, and on the throne is a king, and the king is Jesus, and all around the throne are people bowing down, and they're giving him their treasures, and there were loud cheers and clapping and, and clapping and bright laughter and thousands of waterfalls, and everyone burst out into singing a new song. This is our king, the lamb who died, so we don't have to. Our rescuer. All glory and all honor forever and ever and every creature everywhere in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, join in. And then, from all around, 
a wide, immense, beautiful silence. And I see Satan, God's horrible enemy, thrown down, defeated. I see a sparkly city shimmering in the sky, glittering and glowing, coming down from heaven and the sky. Heaven is coming down to earth and God's city's beautiful. Walls of topaz and jasper and sapphire. Wide streets paved with gold and gleaming pearl gates that are never locked. And they're never shut. Where's the sun and where's the moon? Well, they aren't needed anymore because God is all the light people will need. No more darkness, no more night. And the king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or being afraid. No more being sick and dying because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. And everything sad has come untrue. And see how I've wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, Look, I am making everything new. It was hard to squeeze all that John saw into words and fit it onto a page and to cram it into a book and all the words and all the pages of all the books and all the world would never be enough. I'm the beginning, Jesus said, and the ending. One day John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that it'd be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew that the ending of the story was going to be so great it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that's chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus, and I'll be there soon. John came to the end of his book and he didn't write the end, but because, of course, that's how stories finish. And this one's, well, this one's not over yet. So instead he wrote, Come quickly, Jesus. Which is perhaps another way of saying to be continued. You know, to be continued. There is a greater Christmas yet to come. And we as God's people... Trusting God's Word and the promise that He's sending His Son oh yet again. And that the Christmas we long for hasn't yet come. So we sing. If Todd will come, we'll sing together as we close. Oh come, oh come, Emmanuel. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray this morning, that you would do what only you can do.